Good morning, church. We're glad you're either here with us at the building today or tuning in online. I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to get right into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for each person that's tuning in online, each person that's here physically in the building. And we just pray, Lord, that you would just keep our focus and attention on who you are and what you've done. We pray today as we learn another message from uh, Psalms, I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, encourage our hearts as we've been encouraged over these past few weeks. We're just thankful again for this day that you've made so that we can come and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in our series, Psalms of Encouragement, studying through eight Psalms of Encouragement. And uh, today we're going to study through Psalm 36. Now, Psalm 36 was written by David, but most are unsure of exactly when it was written. It could have been after an incident of King Saul coming after him, but it also could have been after the incident of his son Absalom trying to kill him. You can find that account in 2 Samuel. Now, in in this psalm, we learn about the sinner's perspective, we learn about the Savior's love, and we learn about the saint's request. So first, let's talk about the sinner's perspective, and this is the sinner's perspective on life. Now, when the Bible refers to sinners or wicked, it's referring to unbelievers. It's not suggesting that believers do not sin or that believers are not wicked at times in their lives, but the Lord is reminding us what the life perspective of, of someone who does not trust in Jesus, an unbeliever, what their perspective is like. So he refers to them as sinners or as wicked or as unbelievers. Now, a few things to remember um, when uh, there, there are a few things we need to remember are these things will not describe every unbeliever. These things will not describe all the things that they do, but these things sometimes also describe us when we're not focused in on the Lord. And when dealing with unbelievers, this is something that we really have to remember. Don't refer to them right to their face as sinners. Don't come to them and say, okay, now that you're a sinner, I'm going to talk to you about the Lord. But what you do have to remember is this. You can't leave out sin when you're talking to them about Jesus, okay? We don't want to go up to somebody and kind of agitate them like, you're a sinner, you need Jesus, but we also don't want to leave out sin. So basically what we do when we tell somebody about Jesus, we start off with the fact that we are all sinners. That means we all do things wrong. We all need a Savior. You and I both need a Savior, not just you. I need a Savior as well. That Savior's name is Jesus. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. He rose again three days later to prove that He is God. And the scriptures teach us this, that all who believe have eternal life. So you see what we, what we do there is we basically agree together. We all do things wrong. So if we as believers come to people like, you're a sinner, I'm not a sinner, that's the wrong way to approach it. So when we know and understand the sinner's perspective, it's going to help us to be more effective in dealing with them and leading them to the Lord. So let's like look and see what the sinner's perspective is. The first is this. The sinner has no respect for God. Psalm 36 verse 1 says this. 
transgression or sins speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So respect for God or fear of God, like this passage says, is not something that an unbeliever or a sinner considers. In fact, this passage teaches us that deep inside the unbelieving person's heart, sin or transgression speaks to them. This reminds us of that passage that you've heard me quote before, Jeremiah 17, 9, that tells us that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. So here's what happens. To expect an unbeliever to expect someone who doesn't believe in Jesus to have respect for God and to live by God's standards is asking someone to agree with and comply with something they do not even believe in. They do not even believe exists or in some cases do not even believe is there. So think about this for a minute. As believers, our goal is not to convince people to live by God's standards. It's actually to tell people who God is, who Jesus is, and what he has done for them. At that point, they need to respond in faith to Jesus. If they don't, here's what happens. We're fighting an uphill battle trying to convince them to agree with and respect God and follow his standards and his rules. This is why so many Christians, I believe, are ineffective with unbelievers because they're trying to make them comply with God's standards rather than telling them about Jesus. Because the truth is, is we can't even really comply with God's standards until we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to give us strength to help us do that. So when a person finally trusts in Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit comes in their life. The Holy Spirit comes in their life, starts to work, and then convicts them to start to respect God and follow after his ways and desire to follow him. He's done that for you and me. Before you were a Christian, before you were a Christian, how did you feel about God's standards? You knew they were there. Maybe you heard about them and stuff, but you were just like, I don't really care about that type of stuff. But once you became a Christian, once you believed in Jesus and the Holy Spirit started to work in your life, all of a sudden now you're convicted of certain things that before you didn't even care that you did. You didn't even think that they were wrong. And in fact, even if somebody said they were wrong, you didn't really care that they said that. So when a person finally trusts in Christ, then the Holy Spirit will do that work of conviction. That's not our job to make them or convince them to respect God. Next, the sinner is prideful. The sinner is prideful. Verse 2 says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity or sin cannot be found out and hated. Now, pride is pretty much an excessively high opinion of yourself and your importance. In this case, the pride the sinner is falling to is thinking that their sin is okay. So the pride the sinner is falling to is thinking that their sin is okay, or it's concealed enough to not be found out. Nobody will see this. Nobody will know. This is interesting because the way our culture deals with this is calling things that are sinful, not sinful. Okay, the way our culture deals with this is this, calling things that are actually sinful, not sinful. They'll say, no, 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 that's not a sin. That's just what I like to do. That's not a sin, though. Remember, 
This is the absolute truth issue that I dealt with last week a little bit. In pride, people say things like, that's not wrong, or I make the rules for my own life. You don't tell me what to do. I make the rules for my own life. So now when we look at this verse, it says his sins cannot be found out. His sins cannot be found out and hated. So now here's what happens. In our culture, sin is found out, but it's not hated because it's not named as sin. It's actually challenged by many to say, this is not a sin. Okay, what I'm doing is not a sin. That's just your opinion. And in some cases, the sin is actually loved and actually celebrated. Do you know Romans 1 verse 32 actually talks about this? The Apostle Paul talks about this in the beginning of Romans. He says this, They not only do these sinful things, but they give approval to those who practice them. So not only are these things sinful, but now everybody's like, oh, it's not sinful, it's not wrong, and I'm going to clap and cheer for you because you're living that way. Here's how it works, okay? People make sinful choices for their lives, and those that confront those sinful choices or call those things sin become terrible, bad, unloving, and intolerant people. That might be what some have said of you. When you call out a sin of someone in your life and you say that's wrong or that's sin, God doesn't agree with it, all of a sudden now you've become terrible, bad, unloving, intolerant. So here's what happens. Then the person feels that, okay, they're upset about it. They make that sinful choice, right? They feel that, you call them out, you confront them, you love them, you don't want that for their life. So what they do is now they go and seek out people that will support them. And it's very easy to do in our culture today, right? Because what they do is they take to social media. And maybe they have a couple hundred friends or followers on their friends and followers list. And they put it out there, this is my life choice, this is my lifestyle, this is what I choose to do. And they get a percentage of people of their friends and followers that like, love, and support what they're doing. They give them approval. And they approve them, and in their mind, they think, these people love me, and these other people hate me. So now they have a group of supporters that love them, and a person like yourself that may have confronted them or called them out that hates them. And this is how their mind is working right now. They think you're intolerant. They think you hate them because of the sinful choices they make. So in their pride... They and the people that love them band together and validate one another's sinful actions as if those actions are no longer sin. Let me say that again. As if those actions are no longer sin. Now, this drastically has impacted the church. Now, just to paint a picture, this goes further because this group gets very loud and vocal and the church becomes afraid that it will be accused of being unloving or that they do not accept other people. And here's what happens. When you have biblically ignorant pastors and leaders in the church, they start to listen to the culture and they don't listen to Jesus. And they start to call things that are sinful, not sinful. Well, I know you know this, but just in case you forgot, we here at our church, 
We listen to Jesus. That means that what Jesus says goes because he speaks the truth. We don't care what the culture says, okay? We don't care what the culture says. We care what Jesus says. We want to love our culture. We want to be effective. We want people to know about Jesus, their Savior. But guess what? If we turn Jesus into something that he's not, they'll never know who he really is. So now next, the sinner is this. The sinner is foolish. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. Now, this does not mean that they are dumb, that they are uneducated, and they are not smart. In fact, some people that are unbelievers are very intelligent, and they're very educated. This means they don't heed to the wisdom of God. And when we do not heed to God's wisdom... God calls that foolish. God calls that foolish. This is a worldview issue. Okay, this is a worldview issue. When you live by standards, philosophies, and ideals that are not from God and his word, essentially, it is not wise, but foolish. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.19. He says, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God. The wisdom of the world is folly with God. You know what? When your mind is on foolishness, the result will eventually lead to sin. Which brings us to our final point about sinners, and that is that sinner, the sinner, plans to sin. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The core of the sinner's problem is that they are inclined to do the wrong thing and look for ways to gain dishonestly. And in some cases, they're actually looking for trouble. Obviously, there's varying degrees, right? You might know some people, man, they're always looking for trouble. Then you might know some people that you look at and you say, ah, you know what, they seem like a pretty good person. But what's welling up in their heart is the sin that's unforgiven, that they have not let the Savior take off their, off their heart. And guess what? This is what's actually speaking to them and then eventually contaminate their, contaminating their minds and eventually being acted out in their lives. Now, this all sounds very discouraging, doesn't it? I mean, some of you are probably asking right now, isn't this series called Psalms of Encouragement? And the answer to that is yes. And Psalm 30, 36 actually brings some serious encouragement for all of us, including sinners. And here's where it starts. And it starts with this, the Savior's love. The Savior's love. Jesus loves us despite our sin. Jesus does not love our sin. Jesus does not want us to support one another in our sin. Jesus wants to forgive each one of us of our sin. So the next five verses that we're going to look at teach us about the great love of our Savior, Jesus. Okay, that's where the encouragement comes. It teaches us about the great love of our Savior, Jesus. Because David spent four verses talking about the sinner's perspective. And now he was by and large talking about unbelievers, right? 
But all of us realize that, you know what, we fall into those things sometimes as believers because believers still do sin. So the first is this. The Savior's love is far-reaching. It says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Steadfast means this, firm and unwavering. That means God is loving and faithful and his love is firm and un unwavering. And guess what? It's far reaching. It's so far reaching that no one is out of his reach. We spent the first four verses looking at the sinner's perspective. And as believers, we want nothing to do with that. And sometimes, here's what happens. Because we want nothing to do that, with that, it spins us into a hatred, okay? Not only a hatred for the sin, but now we start to hate the actual people. We start to hate the culture, and we feel like, oh, this is, I, I hate just being around this stuff. So here's what happens. As believers, we're never called to hate other people. In fact, we're called to love others, and Jesus, in his own words, said that we are to love our enemies. So we need to take our lead from Jesus, and that is exactly what he did. He loved his enemies, of which you and I both were before we trusted him. The book of Romans says, because of our sin, we are at enmity with God. We, we, we set ourselves up as enemies, but he came. God demonstrated his own love for us. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we fall into this trap. We think people are so far from God. We know people in our life. They're so far from God that they can never come to him. But the truth is, God's love is so far-reaching that no one is out of his reach. And remember, God is the one who saves. God's the one who does the work. So don't ever think that there's someone in your life that is too far from God that they can never come to him. Because guess what? God will reach out to them. No one is too far off from him. Next, we learn the Savior's love judges righteously. It says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. See, God is righteous, which tells us that he will not do anything unrighteous. Let me say that again. God is righteous, which tells us he will not do anything unrighteous. That means when it comes to judgment, the Lord is fair and he's loving. The only problem for those that reject Jesus is fair and loving is actually paying for your own sin because that sin has to be paid for. But in his great love, he was willing to pay for our sins when we trust him. When we pass from this life and stand before him in judgment, we'll experience, in his, we'll, we'll experience his love in full effect. You as believers will experience his love in full effect because you will not be judged for the sin that you have committed because Christ has taken that judgment for you. Christ has paid for those sins. But those who don't believe, those who don't trust Jesus, actually have to pay for their sins. They're actually judged for the things they do because Christ did not take that sin from them because they rejected the free gift 
that he was willing to give. Next, we learn our Savior's love offers protection. He says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Do you realize God protects his people? And there are various ways God protects us. He protects us physically, he protects us emotionally, and he protects us spiritually. And I believe the focus of this verse is actual spiritual protection. You know, in Luke 12, 4 through 5, it says this, I tell you, my friends, this is Jesus speaking, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, physical danger is just that. It's physical. It's here. It's now. But spiritual danger is actually eternal. And only Jesus can protect us from the eternal spiritual danger. Now, next, the Savior's love is provisional. The Savior's love is provisional. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This is a reminder that all blessings flow from the love that God has for us. In James, you might remember, it teaches us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. The river of delights is probably a reference to the river of life found in Revelation 22, which we will experience in eternity. And for the believer, we are heirs of his inheritance. And basically God is saying, what's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. I'm going to provide. God's love is provisional. He'll provide for us everything that we need. Now, finally, the Savior's love brings purpose. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In your light do we see light. Now in John 4 and in John 7, Jesus said he gives living water, which is a reference to eternal life that he gives, which gives our life purpose. Which gives our life purpose. That is why the verse continues to say, we see light. See, what happens is our path is now illuminated by the truth of our calling, which is to bring glory to God. So now, all of a sudden, before you were a believer, you really didn't seem to have much purpose, or your purpose was very worldly, but now that you're a believer, you have purpose. So what does that mean for the believer? Well, that means that the things that we do or say can have a huge impact a huge spiritual impact on our lives and the lives of the people around us. The people around us realize that we live with a purpose. In his love, he gives our lives purpose. So now when you do things like when you go to work, you can realize I'm not just doing my job. I'm actually working for God's glory. When you parent your children, you could realize I'm not just raising my kids. I'm raising them to bring glory to God. As a married person, you could realize, I'm not just a spouse. My marriage can be used to bring glory to God. As a student, you can realize, I'm not just studying for the grade. I can use my time in school to bring glory to God. 
And guess what? The list can go on and on. And the reason that list can go on and on is because you have purpose. You have purpose. Now, this brings us to the concluding verses in which we see this. We see the saint's request. And when I say saint here, I'm talking about the believer. Now, this, you know, a lot of times people think of saints and they think of like old, like, you know, um, art, you know, people with halos around them and stuff. No, a saint in the scriptures is a believer, is a believer, okay? There's nothing more special about us except for the fact that we are saved from our sin, okay? So a saint is a believer and saints should pray. Christians, believers, should pray. So all who trust in Jesus are saints according to the scriptures. And we as saints make requests to the Savior that loves us. The Savior loves us, and we make requests to the one who loves us. And this is what David's doing here. He sees and is dealing with sinners around him, okay? He knows the love of the Savior. So basically, he ends this psalm, he breaks out in prayer. And here's what his prayer looks like. He prays for fellow believers. He's, the, the, the first thing is this. The saints request for these truths to continue. Okay? For these truths to continue. Verse 10 says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, the fellow believers, those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. So what he's saying, David is praying here, I know these things about you, Lord. I know these things about you, Lord. Please keep doing them and showing them to me. Please keep doing them and showing them to me. We pray like this all the time, right? Our prayers are pretty much, pretty much this all the time. It's just inject different situations, right? We pray these things. Please keep doing this. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know your love. I know your judgments. I know all these things. Please, please, please keep doing this in my life. Next, David prays the saints request for protection. He says, let not the foot of, the, of, of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. You know, most of us, when we see protection, we think physical protection. We've talked about this a lot in the Psalms. But here, David's praying for spiritual protection. Notice he says, the foot of arrogance come upon me. He's praying, you know what, Lord? Protect my heart attitude. Protect my heart attitude. A lot of times when we're dealing with unbelievers, you know, we get prideful. Like we think we're something special or better than them. And, and they get that. They see that. Okay? So David's saying, no, 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 don't act like that. We're the object of God's love. He loves us so much, but so are they. We're no better. So he's saying, you know what? Don't let my heart attitude become arrogant. As believers, we have to guard our heart and ask the Lord to protect us from the sin that can well up in us. You know, maybe yours is an arrogance or pride. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's some kind of heart thing. Maybe it's a gossip thing, whatever it is. Maybe it's an anger thing. Okay, you have to pray to protect yourself from slipping into that. Next, he says, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Here's how we can apply this. Here's how we can apply this. Don't let sinful people cause you to fall away. Pray, Lord, help me not to get caught up in their sinful ways, caught up in their sinful ideas, confused 
and call things that are sinful not sinful. You know what? Maybe there's people in your life that cause you to go down the wrong path. And I'm not saying it's their fault because it's your fault too, but maybe their presence in your life is something that kind of brings you down the wrong path. You need to pray before you're around them. In fact, in some cases, maybe you need to pray whether you should be around them or not. I mean, I know in some cases it's impossible not to be around those people because maybe they're in your family or in your classes or in your, in your workplace. So maybe it's impossible not to be around them. So you've got to pray for protection against going the wrong way because you're following after them. Finally, this brings us to our last point, and this is the saint's request for victory. David's request for victory, our request for victory. There, the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. You know what? In David's case, he had physical enemies that he needed victory over. He had physical enemies that he needed victory over. You may have physical enemies that you need victory over. But maybe right now, you're not seeing them. But I could tell you what enemies you do have, and we learned about this in Ephesians. The spiritual enemies, things that are waging war. Demon, Satan and demons are waging war against you as a believer because they don't want you to be effective for the cause of Christ. They don't want you to have victory. They don't want you to pray for your friends. They don't want you to tell your friends about the Lord. They don't want you to be the kind, loving Christian that God has called you to. They want to mess you up, and they want to mess with you, and they want to have victory over you. So what David does is he prays for victory. Part of our prayer life should be against those enemies and... See God, seeing God bring victory in all areas of our lives. Because guess what? He is the one who loves us and wants us to have that victory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. I'm thankful for this psalm of encouragement, Psalm 36, that encourages us to see who you are and what you've done and the love that you have for us. And even though at one point we were in that seat of the sinner before we trusted in you, Lord, we know that we can kind of fall back into old patterns of life. So we pray for protection against that. We pray for the people around us that are still unbelievers, that do not trust you. We pray, Lord, that you would just open their hearts up and give us opportunities to speak with them about your love and your grace and your mercy towards them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.